This audio recording is of our regularly scheduled service, January 10th, 2016. The speaker is Sam Ford. More information can be found at restorationroadchurch.com. Okay, well, good morning. We're going to be in the back part of Genesis chapter 4, so if you have your Bibles, you can turn there. Um, just by way of recap, first and foremost, we, we're going straight through books of the Bible. We're in Genesis. We're going through the first 11 chapters as kind of part one, and then we'll insert some different parts uh, in between the uh, other three. Last week, we read uh, the beginning of the story of Cain and Abel, and uh, we read that God had rejected Cain's offering. They both had brought offerings to the Lord, and Cain's had been rejected, not because it was uh, green salad instead of lamb chops, but because Cain had not offered his sacrifice in faith like his brother Abel had. We explored what that meant. It meant partially that not only had he not given God his best, he had given out of a sense of duty with a heart of entitlement. He had worked the field that God had given him using the hands that God had blessed him with. And he offered the fruit that God had ultimately grown and he did all of this stuff for himself. And when God rejects this sacrifice, instead of receiving that rejection, and instead of kind of stopping when his unfaithfulness was revealed and examining his own heart, Cain attacks his faithful brother. He murders him. God punishes Cain. Curses him uh, to be a wanderer. Curses him with uh, no longer being able to bring forth uh, from the land fruit like he had. And Cain complains. And he says, this is horrible. This is, the, this is worse than death. I'm going to walk around like a fugitive and a wanderer and, and someone is probably going to kill me when they find me. And reveals in that statement, ironically, that he is scared that someone will do to him the very same thing he has done to his brother. He is not regretful. He is not remorseful. He is not repentant. He is an unrepentant murderer. And even in that, God shows him grace. And he says, no, not only is no one going to kill you, I'm going to protect you your entire life from that happening. Such grace. But the rest of the chapter, as we will read beginning in verse 17, reveals just what happens to this marked man named Cain. What becomes of the guy who leaves the presence of God and begins to build his own family. And that's really what the second half of Genesis 4 is, the record of Cain's family. And it's the first, however short it is, it's the first of many genealogies that will show up in the book of Genesis and all of the Bible. Genealogies are very important, and genealogies are the very thing that we're probably more apt to just read over or read very quickly through. They're not spend time in them because they're, they're boring, but they were very meaningful to the people of Israel, and they are important in that God could have written many things in Scripture. John records at the end of his Gospel that there are many other things he could have recorded that Jesus said and did but he put these in particularly, and God has done that throughout Scripture. So this genealogy is important. It's the kind of thing that we should probably press more deeply to, not less. 
The line of Cain is intended to contrast with Genesis 5, which is going to um, explain or lay out the line of Seth, Adam and Eve's third son. We'll look at that next week. But we know that both lines are ultimately full of sin. There's not a line that um, has less sin than the other. They're all born into sin because of the curse. But they're both full of sin. Both lines experience the grace of God. Both lines are remembered for doing great things. But there is a difference. One line is basically remembered just for doing great things. And the other will be remembered for doing great things for someone who is great. Simply stated, the meaning we get out of this part of the chapter, it's about remembering. And we are either going to be remembered for advancing our own name, defending our own name, or proclaiming the one and only name that truly matters, Jesus Christ. So we'll begin in verse 17, where we'll begin to explore the culture of Cain, culture devoted to remembering and advancing their own name. In verse 17, it says this, Cain knew his wife, and she conceived and bore Enoch. And when he built a city, he called the name of the city after the name of his son, Enoch. And to Enoch was born Irad, and to Irad was born Mahujahel. And Mahushael fathered Methushael. And Methushael fathered Lamech. And Lamech took two wives. The name of one was Ida, and the name of the other was Zillah. And Ida bore Jabal. He was the father of those who dwell in tents and have livestock. And his brother's name was Jubal. He was the father of all those who play the lyre and the pipe. Zillah also bore Tubal-Cain. He was the forger of all instruments of bronze and iron, and the sister of Tubal-Cain was Naamah. This is God's Word. Now Cain leaves the presence of God. He is protected by the grace of God, and he builds an amazing civilization. Cain the wanderer, Cain the fugitive, eventually settles down, marries, and have kids, and and the fact that he marries has disturbed many an individual who have called into Bible Answer Man type of shows and said, but who's Cain's wife? <laughs> the reality is this. Many will wonder where Cain's wife came from, forgetting that Adam and Eve, Adam in particular, lived 800 years. And in that time, he had a few kids. Lots of kids, in fact. Sons and daughters. And we know that Cain married ultimately one of his sisters. There's the answers for all the people who will challenge you with silly questions like that. But, unlike the genealogy of Adam and Eve's third son, Seth, Cain's genealogy here is a little different. It includes more than just names. It includes achievements, if you will. It's full of invention. Cain's descendants, we see in the different names and the different things that they did, really were the founders of, of all agriculture. They were the founders of the, all musicians. They were the blacksmiths. Now whether they acknowledge it or not, men and women, yesterday and today, 
are all made in the image of God. That is what makes mankind unique. Not only does it give us the capacity to commune with God in a way that no other creature does, but we also have the capacity to create like our Creator. All men and women create differently. They're all gifted with the capacity to create some obviously very artistic, some more mechanical, all kinds of things. We all have the capacity and ability to create. And we look at this culture around us, and it's actually quite amazing. And that is the result of what we commonly refer to as common grace. A grace that is common to all of mankind. A grace that is available and a blessing to all of mankind, believer or not. The different inventions we see in the world, the different uh, things that, that have come forth in uh, everything from architecture to agriculture and everything in between are the result of God's grace. God has imbued men with the capacity, women with the capacity to do some amazing things. And it's interesting to pause and think about a world around us and all these amazing things, what that would look like without sin. It gives you a picture of the new heavens and the new earth. They will still be creating, but be creating without sin in all perfection and glory the way God designed us to. But right now we see that that is still something that men and women enjoy where we can look at a musician and we can see and, and celebrate what God has done through that musician and their ability to create, even if they write and create songs that do not glorify God. The capacity to create, the ability to create regardless, is a gift of the Lord. It's a grace because it's undeserved. It's a grace that is sovereignly bestowed by God upon everyone. And the truth is, most everyone is not grateful for that grace. Most people in the world do not acknowledge that they are dependent on God, that everything they have, their mind, their hands, their heart, everything is a gift of God. And they use, therefore, the things that they create and they build, basically, to serve themselves. The first city we see with Cain was built apart from the presence of God, dedicated to his own son. It won't be the last city dedicated to one of men's children. But it's the first, and it's important. Having been rejected by God, the descendants of Cain, thrust away from the presence of God, now, in order to probably deal with the curse that they have been given, give themselves fully over to the things of the world, to creating. In a very, I think, real way, his people were not just creating things, they were worshiping the things that they created. Their identity became what they did. You have a genealogy, the very first one, from the line of Cain, the line that walked away from the presence of God, that rebelled against God, and they are identified not just by their names, but what they do. Their identity became what they did. What they did became the primary source of their meaning, the primary source of their joy, the primary source of their security and their hope. They grew food, made food to fill their own bellies. They made music to hear their own songs. They made weapons to increase their own power. It was all about them. And like Cain, even if they appeared to do something spiritual for the Lord, it was really to make a name for themselves. Quite literally, the descendants of Cain built families and they built cities and they built civilization dedicated to advancing 
their own name and making it great. They built and they put plaques on things to declare how awesome they were and the name of the person who had built that or grown that or whatever. And the truth is, men still struggle with that. Women still struggle with that. Finding their identity in what they do and doing things in order to gain an identity. We build careers for our own comfort and our own sense of success. We build families so we can have our own legacies. We build churches for our own fame. Yes, that happens, and I don't have to convince you of that. As churches grow and ministries start, you wonder sometimes, whose name is it actually about? As they create johndoe.com ministries. We're all captivated by achieving our own sense of greatness. We're all convinced and Maybe you're not, but I've struggled with this. Like, I need to make my mark. I need to do something great. And the way we measure that greatness is if others praise us. Or in today's language, is others like us. If others follow us. If others share our stuff. Recognize it was us who did it. Remember us. That's all no. Am I going to be remembered? This reminded me of a fictional story written by Elizabeth Elliot. Elizabeth Elliot was the wife of a very um, famous missionary because he was killed by the people that um, he was ministering to and ultimately uh, the tribe he was ministering to came to faith. Jim Elliot. His anniversary of his death was just a couple days ago. His wife actually, I believe, died just like a week or two ago, pretty recently. And I didn't even know this was a story that she had written out of um, a book called These Strange Ashes, but I think it's appropriate, and I may have shared it before, but it's good, very good. And by good, I mean very convicting. It's a little parable about Jesus, and it says this, One day Jesus said to his disciples, I'd like you to carry a stone for me. He didn't give any explanation, so the disciples looked around for a stone to carry. And Peter, being the practical sort, sought out the smallest stone he could possibly find. After all, Jesus didn't give any regulation for weight and size, so he put it in his pocket. Jesus then said, follow me, and he led them on a journey. At about noontime, Jesus had everyone sit down, and he waved his hands, and all the stones turned to bread. And he said, now it's time for lunch. In a few seconds, Peter's lunch was over. When lunch was done, Jesus told them to stand up, and he said again, I'd like you to carry a stone for me. This time Peter said, ha, 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 now I get it. So he looked around and saw a small boulder, and he hoisted it on his back, and it was painful, and it made him stagger. But he said, oh, I can't wait for supper. Jesus then said, follow me. Led them on a journey, with Peter barely being able to keep up. Around supper time, Jesus led them to the side of a river, and he said, Now everyone, throw your stones into the water. And they did. Then he said, Follow me, and began to walk. Peter and the others looked at him dumbfounded, and Jesus sighed and said, 
Don't you remember what I asked you to do? Who were you carrying the stone for? Who were you carrying the stone for? Why do we do what we do? Who are we doing it for? These are the kind of questions that a genealogy started to spark in my mind. With all of it that we've been given, with all the time that we've been given, with all the treasure and the stuff we've been given, the opportunities and the experiences that we've been given, for whose glory are we using or leveraging those things? For whose glory and whose name do we share those things or not share those things? When our genealogies are written, whether they are or not, I wonder if we will be remembered for the great things we accomplished, the great careers we started, the great families that we raised, the great ministries that we are a part of, or will we be most remembered for the great God for whom they were accomplished by and for? It's a hard question to ask. And really we're talking about Are we going to be remembered for advancing our name or God's? Well, verse 23, as we get into more of Lion's Cain, shows us there's more than just remembering to advance your name. Sometimes we're trying to defend our name. Verse 23, it says, Lamech said to his wives, Ida and Zillah, Hear my voice, you wives of Lamech. Listen to what I say. I have killed a man for wounding me. A young man for striking me. If Cain's revenge is sevenfold, then Lamech's is seventy-sevenfold. If Cain's revenge is sevenfold, then Lamech's is seventy-sevenfold. It's important to remember that the gift of common grace means that godless societies are not necessarily unsuccessful societies. It just means they're empty ones. But on all earthly measures, they may be very successful. The same goes for us as a people, as individuals, or as a community, that we can become very wealthy, very full, in all earthly ways possible, and yet below the surface be completely bankrupt. And it's hard to tell. It's hard to tell as you see what seem like happy families and Glorious marriages and really successful careers and and big churches. You're like, man, looks like they're just doing everything right. It is possible for those things to look right and to be very wrong and very empty. I believe that when someone is devoted to advancing their own name or committed to honoring their own name, that is going to require the dishonoring of God's. And that's what we see in the line of Cain, particularly through this one man. We see that the success of Cain's culture was founded upon the rejection of God's designs. Not only did they build cities named after their own children, Cain's descendants end up rejecting God's very clear ways for their own. Lamech, the great, great, great grandson of Cain, it says, takes two wives. Makes a point. Unlike The other genealogy you see with Seth say he took two wives. What we see is that from the very beginning, a rejection of God's original design 
that was found in Genesis 2.24. For a man and a woman would leave their parents and cleave to one another, not cleave to a harem of wives. His first wife is named Ida, whose name means pleasure or beauty. His second wife, Zillah, whose wife means shade, most likely referring to flowing long hair. His eventual daughter was named Nema, means loveliness. It follows that there are a little bit about appearances, a little bit about what you can see. The culture Cain builds is one that promotes, if not worships, appearances, worships beauty or what you can see, which, let's be honest, that sounds very much like our culture. Putting on a good face on the front, making things look pretty, worshiping beauty, worshiping appearances, knowing that behind what you see is brokenness and bankruptcy. From the very beginning, they reject God's designs, and the rejection of God's designs will always lead to the exploitations of God's gifts. And that's what we see happen. In the spirit of Cain, Lamech puffs up his own pride, and he continues in rejecting God's designs by rejecting the sanctity of life. He kills, in verse 23 he says, a nameless young man for somehow wounding him. We don't know how. It was verbal. Maybe it was physical, but he he wounded him and he took it in himself to kill him. And the true nature of, of his heart, the true nature, I think, of the heart of Cain's line is found in verses 23 and 24 when he speaks to his wives, but he doesn't really speak to his wives as much as he sings to them. In Hebrew, and this is kind of a taunt song, and a taunt song is, is just what you think it is. It's a taunt. It's like old-style, ancient trash talking. He's just smack-talking about himself. That's what people do, right? You don't know what I'm going to do to you. I'm awesome. Like This is what he's doing. He's singing a song about himself in regards to what happened with this event. And what does he do in his song? He boasts about his violence. Oh, man, I killed a man. I took him down for hurting me. That's what Lamech did, everybody. Watch out. And then he threatens anyone who may attempt to challenge that decision as wrong, as unjustified. He doesn't complain like Cain did. What you see, Cain had fear. Lamech has no fear. In fact, he puts in his his confidence and his capacity to defend himself. Remember Cain, right? Cain kills and God says, hey, this is your punishment. He's like, I'm going to be killed now. God's like, no, you know. Lamech isn't like, I'm going to be killed now. Lamech's like, I killed? Bring it. Someone's going to try to bring it to me? I'm going to bring it to him worse than God was going to bring it to Cain. God was going to bring it seven times. I'm going to bring it 77 times. Singing a song about himself. See, the last one to declare, as I said, something like what Lamech sings was God in describing what would happen to anyone who might harm Cain. God had declared back in Genesis 4, verse 15, that anyone kills Cain, vengeance shall be taken on him sevenfold. 
If anyone kills Cain, God says, he'll have to deal with me. If anyone kills Cain, I will bring vengeance upon him because the Bible says vengeance is mine, says the Lord. And what does Lamech say? If anyone tries to kill me, I will bring vengeance. In fact, I will bring vengeance not just like God, but greater than God. See, he is doing much more than just describing what his intentions are. He is declaring his lordship. He is declaring himself to be greater than God. I thought one commentator described it perfectly in paraphrasing him. He said, he, he says something like this, I've been offended and I have judged that the offense is a mortal one punishable by death. And because God of the universe, who is supposed to be running things, didn't run them to suit my fancy, but permitted someone to offend me, I have erased that offender from the face of the earth. And no one may call me to account. God may have put a mark on Granddaddy Cain in order to protect him, but I am perfectly able to take care of myself. You see, men in themselves are devoted to one of two things. Either advancing their name and doing great things and for the greatness of themselves, or defending their own name as we see Lamech doing here. And defending your name is not about defense against some unjustified attack. Defending your own name is this. It's being devoted to your own rightness. It's being and acting as your own judge and exacting punishment on anyone who may threaten your reputation or reveal that you actually may have done something wrong. You are more worried about being right than you are about being gracious. Defending your own name. Well, that is the Cain culture, if you will, seen most clearly in what we call the lyric of Lamech. But in the last two verses, you have what I'm describing as the sermon of Seth. And unlike Cain's line, who talked only about themselves, what they had done and what they would do to others, Seth talks only about God. It says in verse 25, Adam knew his wife again, and she bore a son and called his name Seth. For she said, God has appointed for me another offspring instead of Abel, for Cain killed him. To Seth also a son was born, and he called his name Enosh. And at that time, people began to call upon the name of the Lord. These two verses are so full, and so quickly we would read over them if we wouldn't stop now and listen. The birth of Seth marks the return of, of the narrative to Adam and Eve. Eve gives birth to a son, calls his name Seth. Declaring something different than she declared with Cain that God has appointed. God has appointed a substitute for faithful Abel. When Cain was first born, uh, she said something different. 
She had said in a very real way that um, uh, God has helped me bring forth this deliverer. And she, in many ways, kind of emphasized her participation in the bringing forth of a child she assumed was going to save. In this case, she is focused very differently. She declares, I think, more clearly a faith in God, not in herself to bring forth anything, but in God to bring about the fulfillment of His promise through His appointed people and ways. The birth of Seth marks a very clear creation of two people or or distinction between two people, two different lines. One is going to be godly and one is going to be ungodly. Both are going to be sinful in their own ways, but one is going to be set apart by God, blessed by God, loved by God among all the peoples of the world that God still shows grace to. The birth of Seth begins a story that is going to primarily be about God's glory before it's about God's salvation, or men's salvation, I should say. But the line of Seth continues with the birth of Enosh, and Cain's first son, as we know, was named Enoch. So you have kind of similar names that are going to be throughout these two genealogies. Enoch, Cain's first son, meant dedicated, and we see that he built a city dedicated to uh, the name of his son, really the name of himself. The seventh son of Seth, we'll see in Genesis 5, was also named Enoch. So these two Enochs. You wonder, how are they different? We have one whose father builds a city dedicated to him, and you don't hear anything other than this great civilization that's built, all this work that was done in the city of Enoch, the name of Cain. But the other Enoch in Seth's line doesn't build a city. In fact, it says that Enoch, in verse 24 of chapter 5, that he walked with God and that he was not, for God took him. He walked with God and he was not, as in he didn't die, and God took him. The name of Enoch in the line of Seth is not remembered for the great work he did, but the great walk and worship he had for the Lord. Seth actually names his first son Enosh, which means frail or mortal. Unlike the line of Cain, who are captivated by their own strength and perhaps their own creativity and their great accomplishments, the line of Seth, just by the name of his child, recognizes their dependence upon a great God. See, our view of God and our view of ourselves goes together. Some would call it seesaw theology. They both can't be up at the same time. You can't have a high view of God, that God is great, that God is good, that God is perfect, and have a high view of man at the same time. One has to be up and one has to be down. Either God is going to be big and men are going to be small, or men are going to be big and God is going to be small. For the line of Seth, God is up. And what that means is that for him and for his children, he will teach and he will see himself as a line that's inevitably down. By down, I mean 
dependent. By down, I mean weak. By down, I mean recognizing that I need God. That my greatest work ain't that great when compared to the greatness of God. But I think the most clearest picture of who this line of Seth is in contrast to the line of Cain, the most revealing part is in the words. His words couldn't be any more different than the taunt of Lamech. The Bible says in verse 26, the last words of this chapter, that people began to call on the name of the Lord. That can mean a lot of things. We would be apt to think, well, they began to pray, and it's likely they certainly did, but it means more than that. It really means that Seth and his family began to proclaim the Lord by name. They began to talk about the Lord, declare the name of the Lord. Every great thing that they ever did was not an opportunity to make much of themselves, but a chance to make much of God. Look at what God can do. Look what God has done. Look what God will do. And I think it's noteworthy to see that that didn't start happening after Seth was born. Though I do believe Seth began that. What we see is that Seth didn't merely call upon the Lord. His children did after him. They began to describe the calling of the name of the Lord happening after the birth of Enosh. That it was something that his line began to do that was different than the line of Cain. To proclaim the name of the Lord. I think that was probably realized most greatly in Enoch, the one who is taken. The Bible talks about Enoch in a couple other places. In the book of Jude, verse 14, it says, It was also about these that Enoch, the seventh from Adam, prophesied, saying, this is what Enoch said, Behold, the Lord comes when ten thousands of His holy ones to execute judgment on all and to convict all the ungodly of all their deeds of ungodliness that they may committed to such an ungodly way and of all harsh things that ungodly sinners have spoken against Him. Sounds like Enoch said some unpopular things about most of the ungodly world around him. And that was talking about God. Because you can't talk about ungodliness unless you want to talk about perfect righteousness. And although Genesis 6 is going to reveal that most men, even in the time of Enoch, became unfaithful, we learn that it was Seth's super great-grandson, Noah, who Peter described as a preacher of righteousness in his letters. He, this preacher of righteousness, the one who talked about God, proclaimed God, declared God. He is the one who would depend upon God's grace for salvation from the flood. So what is Seth remembered for? Seth and his family are remembered not for advancing his name or their name by what they did. They're not remembered for defending their name in some of the bad decisions I'm sure that they made. But They're remembered for proclaiming the name of God in all that they did, good or bad. And that led me to 
where I sat on all week. Uh, my wife's grandmother died this past week. And any time that happens, it's, a, it's an opportunity for you to ask yourself, how am I going to be remembered? And it's not that I need to be remembered, that I want to be remembered. That's not the question. The question is, how will I be remembered? Because I believe that if you actually think about that for a moment, you will realize that how you want to be remembered is the thing that's governing how you're living now. I'm going to be remembered for great work that we have done or I've done or for the great worship of a great God. Be remembered for uh, those who accomplished great things or those who proclaimed that God is great in whatever we did, big or small. Will we be remembered for creating for God or communing with Him? See, we can do many great things, but how will you do them? And maybe more importantly, why? Will you do them? And I think this works itself out in three ways. A very personal way, and then a family, and then in our church community. I think we all need to ask ourselves individually, how will I be remembered on the day of, of, of our funeral? What do I hope they talk more about? What an amazing you know, dad and husband I was, or how funny, or do I hope that they just talk about Jesus? Do I hope when they, people leave my funeral, they just can't, man, that guy really wanted us to talk about, think about Jesus. I think it's possible for us to become so devoted, too devoted to making our mark that we, in fact, miss the most important mark altogether, that we actually fall short of God's glory in pursuit of our own. And here's the scary thing for me, and it may be scary for you. We can fall short of God's glory in pursuit of our own, believing that we are doing it for Him. As much as I, I believe preaching is important and preaching is a means to glorify God, Preaching itself can become the very thing for me that takes me away as I make it about myself and not Jesus. If you leave on a Sunday morning, and this isn't totally in my control, thinking more about the funny jokes Sam says or the clever little you know, statements he creates and not Jesus, Lord and Savior, I may have failed or you're not listening well, or both, I don't know. But that, that's the darkness of sin. How will I be remembered? But then it's asking about our family, right? How will my family be remembered? I believe that our commitment to either, and it's a commitment, it's a discipline, to promote your name or proclaim God's name is going to impact multiple generations. At least four. I believe that, that your 
tendency, your efforts to promote your own name, to, to uphold your own legacy, or to promote the name of Jesus is going to affect the generation of your parents. It's going to affect your generation right now, your peers, but it's going to affect your children and it will affect your grandchildren. I think if we learn from genealogies, the fact that God puts genealogies, yes, we have this line that leads us to Jesus, but we also learn that generations are important. That we've all here been given a a generation of time, right? 40-ish years to do something for the Lord, and we're all going to end these 40 years going, did I make much of myself, or did I make much of the Lord, and what, or how is that evidenced in my family? Our children, I believe, are going to remember and pass on the sermons that we preach with our lives. And the truth is, we preach some bad sermons. We do. But after you preach a bad sermon, what do you preach next? When you fall flat on your face and you fail before the Lord, then what are you preaching? Do your kids and your friends and your parents see you proclaiming the grace and the forgiveness and the love of Jesus Christ or their own strength? And just pull up your bootstraps, you can do it. And if you've been preaching bad sermons up to this point, it's never too late to start preaching good ones. But lastly, and maybe again more connected with my thinking, but I pray that we would think more like this. I I hope you remember or you begin to understand, and this has taken me probably half my life to figure out, that the church is not an addendum to our Christianity. That Jesus Christ died for the church. That Jesus Christ brought us together into a family, into a body. How will our church be remembered? We uh, are three years old. We three years old this week. We'll make a cake or something, I don't know, right? And we've done some great things. We've seen God do some great things. But I pray that we will always consider, and I don't say I say that word particularly, not we will remember that we will consider, that we will evaluate always whether we are doing whatever we do for the name of Jesus or for the name of ourselves. Because it's very tempting, very tempting to make a name for yourself and a name for your church and talk, oh, Restoration Road and our church and these things and forget the name of Jesus. For whom this is all supposed to be about. I pray that every sermon we preach, every song we sing, every gift we give, every service we offer, every event we hold, every conversation that we have with one another or anyone outside will be to make much of the name of God, even if that means our name must be made less of. And it probably will be. But glory to God call upon God's name, to proclaim the name of the Lord is to preach in every way we possibly can through word and in deed and in sacrifice and in love, the name of Jesus. Jesus is the only name given under heaven by which men must be saved. Jesus is the only way, the truth, and the life. 
Jesus is the reason to live. Jesus is my joy and our joy in suffering. And Jesus is our hope in death. Now we'll close with what Paul wrote at the very beginning of Philippians, a book that is characterized by joy and it's written from prison. And as Paul considers whether he will live, whether he'll actually die in prison, he reveals his heart. And I pray it becomes our heart. Philippians chapter 1, verse 19, he says, Yes, and I will rejoice, for I know that through your prayers and the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, this will turn out for my deliverance as it is my eager expectation and hope that I will not be ashamed, but that with full courage, now as always, with full courage, now as always, Christ will be honored in my body, body, whether by life or by death. For to me, to live is Christ, and to die is gain. Oh, Lord, that we could say that. For to me, to live is Christ. To die is to gain because I get to be with Him. If I am to live, he writes, in the flesh, which this is all of us, because God doesn't take us when when He saves us. He doesn't take us when He baptizes us. He leaves us here with something to do. He says, for if I am to live, if if God wants me to keep living, if I'm to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me. Yet which I shall choose, I cannot tell, because I'm hard-pressed between the two. My desire is to depart, to be with Christ. That's far better. I'd rather be with Jesus, people. But to remain in the flesh is more necessary on your account. And you're tempted at this point to go, you know, I, you guys really need me. That's why I'm here. Glad, you should be happy that I am. Listen to what he says. Convinced of this, I know that I'll remain and continue with you all for your progress and joint faith, so that in me you may have ample cause to glory in Christ Jesus. Paul doesn't say, I'm staying here so you can make much of me, so we can celebrate all the good work that I could do before I die. He's saying, the only reason God has me here is so that you'll have more, more, and more reason. Praise Jesus. I pray that that would be our desire. And I believe that's a gift of the Lord. We're going to celebrate communion as we do. And this is a table of remembrance. It's a table to remind us what we're supposed to remember. And it's also partly a table to remind God what He should remember. And that is Jesus. That this is where new life begins. And this is where Renewed life continues. And it's a shared life we have pointing to the eternal life that we're going to have with Jesus. This is for those who are in Christ. This is for those who have confessed that, you know what? I believe. I believe that Jesus Christ died on the cross for my sins. I believe that Jesus rose from the dead. And I believe that He has left me here to make much of Him and that my name doesn't matter. And the only name that does matter is Jesus. And I'm going to spend every breath and bit of energy whether it be as a plumber, as a mom, as a preacher, as whatever, making much of Jesus. Let us be, let that be our prayer. Let's pray.